How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I don't know where else this would fit, but I suppose now is as good a time to tell you as any. I saw this great interview with Wachowski's on uh, DeVry University, and they um, they talk about a lot of stuff, but. Uh, one of Lana's first, yes, Lana's, Lana's first uh, screenplays was The Princess Bride. Uh, she had uh, worked really, really, really hard, read the book, was like a huge fan of the book and uh, had had uh, written out the screenplay was like, this is perfect. Like everything's already here. I can already just do all this. And she wrote the whole thing basically started pretending to be like a publishing company or like a, some kind of production company and like started calling up Hollywood studios and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then she said that she uh, got William Goldman's number and uh, she was like, okay, well at this time she was like, he's surely got uh, uh, an answering machine. So he's not going to answer. So I'm going to leave him a message. So she wrote out like this huge, long uh, introduction and like why she's the best person to adapt the princess bride now, this was like in college i think so then she called and she said immediately somebody picked up was like, this is bill goldman she was like uh <laughs> <laughs> and she's like and then she's like i have adapted the princess bride for the screen and then bill goldman was like i don't know how the fuck you got this number i've adapted princess bride for the screen and it's gonna make a lot of money bye <laughs> i mean he was right <laughs> that was my yeah. next question was like where in the timeline did this fall <laughs> yeah like, you, you, a- you can't fault him for that because like you know he adapted his his book you know yeah. yeah and he and and william goldman is one of the i don't know most famous screenwriters of all time <laughs> so <laughs> She had to kind of assume that he was probably going to do that. We also, I don't think, talked about that their first meeting with Steven Spielberg was, or did we, on Bound? Mm. They were making Bound. They, uh, really? Yeah. She told that story and said that uh, they were like really stunned. He's like, oh, you're making your first picture. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. You get hold like really nervous. They're like, do you have any good advice? And he said, wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Good advice, Steve. actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be on your feet for like 15 hours a day, uh, yeah, comfortable shoes is probably the way to go. Yep. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, we'll actually start the real podcast now. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores some stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. And if you've ever wondered, if if you've gone through the past two years without getting COVID, and you've ever wondered what it's like having it, but only in your eyeballs, 
Well, this is the episode for you. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Wow, he's starting right out of the fucking gate with this. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop. Uh, we're joined, of course, by Mr. Todd Davis. And I'm ready to be a real race car driver. And we're joined by special guest, Miles Griffin. Welcome back to the show, Miles. Thanks, guys. It is always amazing to be here. Get Miles, that Miles, shit Miles. off my track. <laughs> probably one of the best lines in the movie i'm really glad you're here miles because i feel like gary's gonna be a lot today <laughs> when isn't gary a lot <laughs> yeah, that's true i was so, dealing with gary all last night oh yeah well i don't do we need to know this story <laughs> Look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still i'm still a little sore in the back area but you know yeah. hey uh, so uh, so welcome the to back Mark. area for carrying this show <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, welcome to part five of our series on the Wachowskis. Uh, last week we took a little bit of a uh, a detour on a film that they did not direct, but were very heavily involved with V for Vendetta. And as we discussed during that episode, uh, after that daunting task of bringing uh, these huge Matrix sequels, Matrix two and three, to the big screen, the Wachowskis wanted to take a brief hiatus from directing. Uh, they focused on the producing writing side of that production of V for Vendetta, uh, allowing their longtime first assistant director, James McTeague, to make his feature directing debut. But after V for Vendetta's release and relative success, uh, the siblings were ready to jump back into the directing pool. Uh, so how to follow up a franchise as monumental as the Matrix trilogy? Well, as they always seem to do, the Wachowskis bucked all expectations with their choice, making something that is about as far from the Matrix films as possible, uh, at least aesthetically speaking. The resulting film was a failure at the box office and with critics, uh, but in recent years, it has gained a cult following and is considered by many to be the, the Wachowskis' most uh, underrated and misunderstood film. And the movie we're talking about is, of course, Speed Racer. He's going to be the best. For my family, racing's everything. I want you to do some of the things you do. You just take my breath away. I'm so proud to be your mom. Speed Racer, what are you thinking? That race was fixed. Someone's trying to crush everything in my life that matters to me. How can we fight this? The only way you'll ever stop these people is to bring them to justice. Racing's the only thing I know how to do when I gotta do something. This isn't a game. These people play rough. That's why I'm going with you. First Blu-ray I ever bought. Really? It was, it's a film that I saw, and because I was, it was still that the early years of Blu-ray, and I had a Blu-ray player because I had a PlayStation Three, mm. and it's the first movie that I saw that I I watched something, and I was like, I need to see this in the best possible like resolution when yeah. I'm watching this at home. That that, that Blu-ray is actually kind of hard to find now. 
uh, it's, it's, it's out of print. I mean, you can find it from third party sellers, but you can't find it in stores. I'm, I'm anxiously really? awaiting a 4k release. Of, oh, of ab- absolutely. I didn't realize it was rare. The, yeah. Yeah. The first DVD I bought or was gifted actually, when I got my first DVD player was the matrix. Nice. Yeah. That's the matrix cool. and fight club. Actually, my parents got me those for my birthday. This was 1999. So those were two, two big releases. Uh, when, when DVDs were first starting to kind of blow up. My my first nice. DVD was I think Dark City. Nice. Cool, which is pretty close to the Matrix, honestly. right? <laughs> <laughs> I think mine so, was I think mine was Spawn. Yeah, let's seven? just keep talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to Gary. Gary, Gary, what was your first DVD? <laughs> my first DVD, I have no idea. Honestly, I don't remember. Good, good story, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to help you move this along. Yeah. <laughs> The Speed Racer is based on the 1960s manga. Do you say manga or manga, Miles? You're it a doesn't nerd. Matter. No, what do you say personally? <laughs> I say manga, but okay. I also do not care. Okay. <laughs> I was just curious. <laughs> I say manga. Now you've okay, already offended the guest right up Gary, <laughs> Gary, what do you say? I think I usually say manga. All right. Anyway, the Speed Racer is based on the 1960s manga and so like anime first Blu-ray series. was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the same name, which was created by Tatsuo Yoshida. Uh, originally published under the title Mock Go Go Go, which just rolls off the tongue. Uh, Speed Racer started its life uh, serialized in the popular manga magazine Shonen Book in 1966. Uh, so while the plot of the comic, which was uh, basically an ambitious young man becomes a race car driver, uh, was based on a previous comic uh, that he had written called Pilot Ace, Yoshida took inspiration for the character designs by two films that were really popular in Japan at the time in the mid 60s. Those movies were Viva Las Vegas and Goldfinger. Oh, wow. <laughs> so basically his, his main character's look was based on Elvis Presley's race car driver character in Viva Las Vegas, complete with a black pompadour and the handkerchief, the kind of neckerchief, you know, yeah. while James Bond's Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, you know, the, the famous a Bond car, the most famous Bond car, served as inspiration for Speed Racer's gadget-filled Mach 5. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I think long... like, that makes for a good pitch. Like, hey, imagine if, like, this Elvis Presley character was driving a... Imagine Elvis driving Presley a... as James Bond. Yeah, Elvis Presley as James <laughs> Bond. Like, all right, that sounds like fun. So it wasn't long before the comic's popularity led to it being adapted into an anime. This was pretty common at the time. Uh, running for 52 episodes from 1967 to 1968, the anime proved to be an even bi- bigger success than the comic, resulting in the series being imported to America. So in the series, in the, in the original anime series, the main character's name was Go Mifune, which was an homage to Japanese film star Toshiro Mifune, who is in all the Akira Kurosawa movies, one of the biggest movie stars Japan has ever seen. Uh, and then, of course, his name was Americanized into Speed Racer as his actual name in, in the uh, American release. Hmm. So the series, which was dubbed and pretty significantly edited for American audiences, debuted in the U.S. in the summer of 1967 and proved to once again be incredibly popular, staying in syndication for years. I mean, I remember growing up in like the 80s and 90s and seeing it still in syndication pretty regularly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, especially when Cartoon Network was first, you know, popping off and they were mostly recycling, you know, the older Hanna-Barra and the yeah. 60s and 70s cartoons. This was in heavy rotation. 
And even this style of popularizing a Japanese anime or Japanese animated show into something that has become part of the American, like, you know, pop culture zeitgeist. I mean, that happened with um, Robotech and it happened with Battle of Plants and something that continued to happen uh, pretty frequently uh, for a good while before we got straight actual adaptations or, or, right. or, or rather uh, translations. So not unlike V for Vendetta, the road to bring Speed Racer to the big screen was a, a long one. In September of 1992, Warner Brothers actually optioned the rights to the film to a film adaptation of the series in development with Joel Silver's Silver Pictures. So we got Joel Silver on board once again. This is this could this Wachowski series could also be a Joel, a Joel Silver, Silver series, series at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Between this and the Shane Black stuff that we covered last Christmas. Oh yeah. Uh it's was that the last time I was on was during the Shane Black month? Maybe that was last year around this time because oh, it was right yeah. before Christmas. So huh. you're our it's favorite Christmas guest. Yeah. It's not really Christmas yet, but maybe every holiday season we'll just do Joel Silver movies. Um, <laughs> call it Silver Bells or something. Hey, hey, got it. That's clever marketing. I like it. So in October of 1994, it was announced that Henry Rollins had been offered the role of Racer X oh. with Julian Temple set to direct. Now, I don't know if you guys know who Julian Temple is. Uh, he is, if you know who he is, he's a really odd choice to direct Speed Racer, at least in my opinion. Uh, he's this English director who's most well-known for his music documentaries and music films, including the 1979 Sex Pistols film, which is more of a, it's actually a mockumentary called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. It's really worth watching if you're into, uh, especially punk music yeah. of that time. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun. But, and I, I guess his connections to the music industry especially on the punk side of things, because he, you know, he, he directed not just the great rock and roll swindle, but he directed movies about the UK subs and about the clash and stuff. He had a lot of connections in that world. So I guess that might explain why he would choose to cast Henry Rollins as racer X. I can't think of any other reason why anyone would. I, I think it's kind of Henry a fun Rollins. choice. If, and if you think about the template they went with, even with Matthew Fox, the way the kind of figure that he cuts, I can see looking at Henry, Henry Rollins, Rollins has a strong jawline. Yeah, I can see, especially yeah. <laughs> when he was super, super cut. I can, I can kind of see the reasoning, especially he's still pretty from, cut. Yeah, if you come from even a as a sixty-five-year-old man, <laughs> I, 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 I see it, and I, I like him as an actor too. He's pretty fun. Yeah, he's fun. So the following year, Johnny Depp was cast in the lead role, with production set to begin in October of nineteen ninety-five. And you got to think uh, where Depp was at the time in the in the early to like, mid nineties. I was gonna right say that. This is a question. When was this? Yeah, Scissor Hands was nineteen ninety. So this is not this is a few years after that. But okay. still at the height of his stardom. Uh, but by August of that year, Depp requested that the studio grant him time off for uh, quote unquote personal business, which delayed production. And due to that delay and a quickly rising budget, Julian Temple ended up leaving the project. And without a director. Johnny Depp soon left the project as well, which is ironic because it was delayed because of Johnny Depp. So he he caused it to be delayed. Julian Temple left because of the delay. Johnny Depp left because Julian Temple left. <laughs> so the studio started looking into other directors and they actually considered Gus Van Zant as Temple's replacement, which to me is another really odd choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he would, I mean, looking at his filmography, he had just directed To Die For and would soon release Goodwill Hunting. Neither of which screams, this guy should direct an anime adaptation about racing. The only thing I can think is that it was a, 
maybe going to be a more realistic approach to that I mean, kind of I driving. guess I don't well, know yeah. like I don't know it, it, really it's bizarre. also it's also possibly because they because they were doing smaller pictures they would be uh easier cheaper directors to to include I mean yeah. big studios often do those things where they were a prominent indie de- a de- uh, director has been doing some work for a little bit and gets attached to a big studio project. Yeah, I mean, but I feel like that's more common now than it was back in the 90s. Like, it's a big thing you see with the Marvel movies. Sure. Uh, and, but, and I mean, stuff, but I don't know that it was as common. That decade. Yeah, I mean, that was 98, but that was, uh, so that was after this. But yeah, uh, I mean, but Psycho wasn't exactly, it was a big name, but not exactly a high, like, super high budget. Not as high a budget as Speed Racer probably would have cost. Oh, probably not. But and it eventually Van Zant left because the studio wouldn't let him write the script. They wanted him to direct, but didn't want him to write it. So the studio also briefly hired Alfonso Cuaron as a director. Uh, and this is a cycle that would kind of continue over the years uh, that the film was spending in development hell. It would just go through one director, one cast member after another, just spinning along. Hmm. And then in September of 2000, Warner Brothers hired music video director Hype Williams to direct the project with writers Christian Gudegas and Paul Schuring working on the screenplay. Uh, and that sounds awesome, honestly. <laughs> like this, this is right after Belly. Belly was 98, I think. Uh, and I, we, you guys know, I love Belly. I think Belly is fucking awesome. And I can just imagine a Speed Racer adaptation with Hype Williams's visual style. I would have been down for that. <laughs> it does sound like fun but that version failed to move forward as well which led to the director and the writers eventually leading the project so you see this is uh, history repeating itself over yeah and over. he was trying to hire dmx as racer x i would have been fine with that <laughs> that would have been great get nas in there as uh, as speed i don't care yeah. that would have been awesome so the project started gaining traction again in June of 2004 when Vince Vaughn spearheaded the revival of the project, presenting a more character-focused version of the story. And Vaughn was, of course, also cast in the film as Racer X and signed on as an executive producer. And like previous attempts, this version of the project failed to move forward as well, and Vaughn eventually departed because it just wasn't going anywhere. Mm. I could so, see Vaughn as Racer X as well. I could too. I think he would be good in it. But of course, he, he just wouldn't fit in a race car. The dude's huge. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Matt, Matthew Fox is a is he's he's not as tall as Vince Vaughn, I guess. Vince Vaughn's yeah. like six seven or six. Yeah, he's, or yeah, he's a, a big a guy, big dude. But, so Joel Silver still got the rights to the movie at this, or Warner Brothers, and Joel Silver is still working on it this whole time. Joel Silver's involved, so he's still determined to get this project off the ground. So you know, trying to move forward with it, he turned to his tried and true collaborators, Lana and Lily Wachowski who signed on to both write and direct the film in October of 2006. So in a Variety article that was reporting the news at the time, this is what Joel Silver was quoted as saying. He said, I've struggled with this movie for a long time, but when Larry and Andy came across with their ideas and vision, it was so fresh and original that you wonder why nobody else thought of it. So they, they, he, you know, he didn't just sign them on. He approached them. They pitched their version of this story and that was enough to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do something very different from the Matrix movies. And the hope was that with this film, they would be able to reach a broader audience than they had with the R-rated Matrix movies. 
So with the Wachowskis on the board, the directors began assembling their list of collaborators, uh, the most important of which I think in this case was visual effects supervisor John Gaeta. He was the guy who invented the Matrix's bullet time effect and who had won an Oscar for his work on this film because there was no way that oh, this yeah. vision was going to come to the screen without some sort of massive special effects. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Something like this. I mean, based on a cartoon alone, but like the pitch, like we talked about earlier, just screams big budget special effects action type stuff. So, yeah, now that makes sense. I don't think I mentioned this before, but uh, that I, I also another thing I found with them is like a phone interview that somebody did. It must have been for an article or something, but it's, I guess this is a good a time as any to mention it. One of the things that attracted the Wachowskis, they said, really was like what they could do with the movie like they were more intrigued by visually aesthetically you know obviously what they could do with it but the the quote from the phone interview that lily gave uh no i'm sorry this was lana said uh we knew this movie was dangerous we're we're very visual thinking audiences we're often drawn to ideas that stimulate the imagination visually and unfortunately we work in a medium that is one of the most rigid aesthetically so if you go to an art gallery or particularly a modern art museum you would experience an unbelievable range of aesthetic possibilities but in cinema all movies typically look the same i mean maybe they'll make one a little greener or a little more dark but they're still all pretty identical we've always thought it was interesting that no one's done anything with the language of editing it begins with a capital letter and ends with a period every time and we thought well, because of computers, we can transcend this language of cinema, stretch out more of the way we experience the world. Uh, we don't experience in grammar, but more of a rushing stream of consciousness and connections. Wouldn't it be amazing if we can use this movie to create sequences in a film that are just rushing montages that simulate the way we actually experience the world, uh, particularly in something like race or in sports or where there's always swirling memories, experience, strategy, conflict all woven without falsely constructed sentences. I kind of love that because yeah. I love the idea that they're not, not only not wanting to repeat themselves, but they're not wanting to repeat what any other filmmaker has done, you know, which, which you don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot of uh, filmmakers who are like specifically trying to go against the flow or create their own, not even against the flow, but create their own lane uh, to, I guess, make a weird, driving reference in a, a movie about driving <laughs> but uh but I, that's what i like about them and and we'll talk about this in their other movies after this as well i think but they they the wachowskis are they love taking chances uh, and they love going against expectations not only expectations that are put upon them based on their previous work but just expectations on what a movie should be yeah in that same interview they talk a lot about how like you know that everybody's a slave to the camera, but they don't have to be anymore because of the computers that they, uh, when they really started digging into the concept of the movie, they were like, you know, we can, we can control everything. Which uh, is it probably, that probably stems from like their use with the virtual camera in the matrix sequels, especially in that burly brawl sequence that we talked about, you know, that, that was kind of, they created that virtual camera for that sequence, but there are so many other possibilities for that technology. Yeah, they, they, they literally said, like, we can now, you know, besides just the plane that we're filming on, we can create, like, what's in the grain on the out-of-focusness, the lens flares. We, all of this becomes an aesthetic choice instead of what we can actually produce physically. Right. 
So while well-known actors such as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Shia LaBeouf, and Zac Efron were initially considered for the role, the lead character of Speed would end up being played by Emil Hirsch, who is still early in his career at this point. Uh, he, he had recently appeared in The Girl Next Door and Lords of Dogtown, which I think were probably the first like significant roles that he'd had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and to like prepare that, for the role, he uh, he watched every episode of the original series, uh, you know, which makes sense. And he also visited the Charlotte Motor Speedway for some racing. Nice. I think he met with like Jimmy Jimmy. What's his name? There's a there's a race car driver named Jimmy Jimmy John. No, that's the sandwich guy. Yeah. I think there is a Jimmy Johnson, right? Or something. Jimmy Johnson. I think it is Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. I think that's who he met. He met one of the you know one of the NASCAR racers who was big at the time. I know. Sh- I know that we are in South Carolina to our listeners, uh, but I don't know shit about NASCAR. I think it's boring as hell. Like really I'm, is. I'm right there with you. Um, <laughs> so just cars going in a circle. Now, if they were on roads, like in this movie that look like the rainbow road from Mario Kart, where you could just fly off and die at any point, yep. it would be a lot more entertaining to me. Oh, I would, I would, I would watch this every single week. No, that no said, problem. Raise hell, praise Dale. <laughs> Absolutely. So for the role of Trixie, several actresses were considered, including Kate Mara, uh, Rose McGowan, and Hersh's Girl Next Door co-star Elisha Cuthbert. Uh, what happened to her? She's on uh, she she this show on Is Netflix. She? The uh, the one with Ashton Kutcher. Oh, oh the, ranch. the Ranch? Is yeah. she on there? She's okay. on there. Well, the role would eventually go to Christina Ricci. Oh, man. Yeah, who looks like a living anime character anyways. So. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say the one I, out I, of those, like I could definitely see Rose, like somehow her, her look feels like it could work, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think the, the main reason that Rose McGowan didn't get cast at the time is because she had recently had a lot of plastic surgery done. Oh yeah. Uh, she's had um, quite a bit over the years, but she had had, it was, it was drastic enough at this time uh, that the producers were actually worried that people wouldn't know who she was. Like they, she, oh, they was it like a bad car wreck, right? Like, a, yeah, I don't know if that was at this time or not, but I know she was at one point. But yeah, the producers were they're like, yeah, people know who Rose McGowan is, but they were worried that they wouldn't see her and know that it was Rose McGowan. Like it was that drastic of a change. Oh wow! And the rest of the cast was filled with veteran American actors such as uh, Matthew Fox, John Goodman, and Susan Sarandon, and international stars such as German actor Benno Furman as Inspector Detector. Uh, Australian actor Kit Gurry as Sparky, British actor Roger Allum, who of course had appeared as uh, Prothero in V for Vendetta. He plays the villain Royalton. And then Korean singer, songwriter, producer, actor Rain as the two-faced rookie racer Tagokan. Uh, Speed Racer was Rain's feature film debut, but the following year he would star in the Wachowski-produced James McTeague-directed Ninja Assassin, which we nice. talked a little bit last about a, a little bit movie. on before that episode. Huh? I said, I'm a fan of that movie. I've never seen it. It's, it's fun, as I recall. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just fun. Yeah, it's just a fun movie. Yeah, they basically, from what I read, they cast him in Ninja Assassin uh, because of like the brief fighting scene that he has here. They saw that they saw some potential in him. Uh, uh, they uh, they had other... asked uh, Keanu, by the way, for like tr- Racer X, but uh, he turned it down. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's one person I wasn't, I, I couldn't really find a lot of info on how he got involved with Matthew Fox. So I imagine it was just a boring, my agent sent me a script. I did an audition. Right. <laughs> you know, nothing very well, besi- besides like, besides the, you know, strong jaw, I feel like that voice has to be. Yeah. And just, he's got a good uh, voice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interestingly yeah. enough, uh, just this, you know, it's very important to know that Scott Porter, who is also Rex Racer or is Rex Racer and then Matthew Fox is Racer X, they share the they share a birthday. Oh, interesting. That's wild. Fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can stop the, the show now because <laughs> and I'm trivia. Trivia. You just the on all the social. Thanks so much, guys. Good night. <laughs> uh, so, Todd, while we're on the subject of uh, of cast. Yeah. Members. Yes. What you got for us today? What you got for us this week? Well, this week and who am I trekking with? Uh, really, this is another thing. I don't I can't decide if it's the Wachowskis that hate Star Trek. Or if everyone on Star Trek hates the Wachowskis, but they seem to just not have a lot of crossover at all. Uh, but I don't think we've discussed at this point, uh, Michael, um, I always mispronounce it, Giacchino? Giacchino? Giacchino. Giacchino. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was about to say, because when we started talking about this, I was like, surely he... Surely he knows the composer on yes, this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, long story short, uh, Michael Giacchino uh, has basically been involved in Star Trek ever since uh, 2009 with J.J. Uh, Abrams. Abrams and the birth of the Kelvin timeline. So that was 2009, uh, 2013 with Into Darkness and uh, 2016 with Beyond. He's also done a uh, supervising composer for three different episodes of Star Trek short treks. Those episodes are Ask Not, The Trouble with Edward, and Q&A. All of that was in 2019. And he was also the composer and director of Ephraim and Dot, which is a fun little uh, animated uh, episode of Star Trek short treks. And that was also hmm. in 2019. And he uh, composed the theme music for the brand new Star Trek Prodigy, which is a uh, it's a fun series, actually. I'm, um, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, Miles and I discussed that the other night. It's a it's a fun one. It's just getting off the ground, so uh, I'm interested to see where that goes. But yeah, that's pretty much all of the Star Trek crossover with this. I one. mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty decent crossover. Yeah, it's all yeah. one guy, but it's still. I mean, do you know? So he got involved with Star Trek because he was a composer on Alias and Lost mm-hmm. with J.J. Abrams, and he did. I think he did Mission Impossible Three, which J.J. produced, and he's done a lot of uh, uh, Pixar movies. Like the Incredibles yeah. with him, he's. I I think he's a really great director. He's actually one of did, my favorite. Didn't he directors. also do Fringe? He may yes. have done Fringe. That's a yeah. bad robot thing, so it's very possible he may have have done Fringe. Such a uh, to, to go that extra mile, uh, he they also used some of his stuff in 2009 for the Star Trek video game Star Trek DAC, which I I found out what DAC me- means, and it doesn't really seem to fit the theme of star trek it means deathmatch assault and conquest okay that's, uh, but that, i was going to i was going to say like dick and cock or something <laughs> which doesn't seem very star trekky so but no. it wasn't quite that far gone no but, it was it was it was a desperate attempt to get some sort of video game sales even though the game itself is not good oh okay i had never played it but yeah yeah i i, I like Giacchino's, um I like his work here because I think it's really fun and fits the movie very well. Oh, and of yeah. course, he he utilizes the the original Speed Racer theme song uh, very very well. I think because mm-hmm. like I when they were making this movie, the Wachowskis actually purchased the rights to not only the theme song but the sound effects that were used in the original series so that they could use those. Nice, yeah, where very where cool. needed. So that's that's pretty fun. Yeah. So Speed Racer was filmed at uh, Babelsberg Studios, the famous studio in post-Tem Germany, where the v- majority of V for Vendetta had been filmed. We talked about that a lot during that episode. And it's funny because most of this film is set on 
small sets or green screens. Majority of every scene is on a green screen. So it makes the location where they're filming it completely unrecognizable. So I'm like, well, why are they shooting? Why are they going to Germany to shoot this if they're just going to be on green screens the whole time? But it was largely economic. Uh, Warner Brothers received $13 million from Germany's then new federal film fund, which is the largest amount that had ever been granted by that organization at that point. Wow. Nice. So Germany basically paid them to come film there. That way they're, they're hiring German crews. Uh, it's bringing a lot of money into the German economy. So it makes a lot of sense, but yeah, that's why a movie that has nothing remotely German about its look or locale <laughs> was filmed in Germany. Although like, <laughs> there's got to be a fun version that leans super hard on like German aesthetic. The production also marked the first time that the Wachowskis had ever shot on high definition video, which is a format that allowed them to have the entire foreground and background in focus, giving it a look that more closely resembled classic anime. Uh, mm. It's called deep focus, but it's something that uh, a lot of movies don't try to do. Although Citizen Kane is famous for its deep focus work. So it's possible, but it's very difficult to light. Mm. But because of the way they're shooting this, they were able to, if you watch this movie, Every single scene is fully in focus from foreground to background, uh, which is very unusual and gives it a really unique look, even in like just what would in, a, in most movies be like a simple dialogue scene. Mm. As, and, as someone who watches a lot of anime, I think it's one of the st most striking things about this film. It's, it's the closest I've seen to a live action representation of what an anime look, would look like in actual as a live action representation. And yeah. it's it's so wild. Like, yeah. it's unlike anything I think I've ever seen. Once you start noticing that and the scene transitions and things like that in the, in this movie, you can't stop noticing them. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the closest thing I've seen recently is at least in the, um, the promotional materials for Netflix's, uh, well, I guess by the time this episode release, uh, Cowboy Bebop show. Yeah. There looks to be an attempt to kind of capture that, that anime style aesthetic. It's still nowhere near, I think, as visually striking and as I think more of a deep dive in, in, the, in its visual um, aesthetic as Speed Racer is, but it's the first time I've seen someone try to re recapture what the, what it feels like to, to be watching an animated program Cartoon, yeah. at, as a live action uh, experience. And obviously this film's visual style is one of its biggest draws, its biggest talking points. And the Wachowskis' main cohorts in creating the movie's unique look were John Gaeta and cinematographer David Tattersall. Now, Tattersall, we haven't talked about him on this show yet. Uh, he's a British cinematographer whose previous credits included collaborations with directors such as Frank Darabont and George Lucas. He was actually the director of photography on the entire prequel trilogy, so he had worked with James McTeague. Uh, but he was unfamiliar with Speed Racer, the cartoon having grown up in England because it wasn't syndicated there, but he wanted to work on the project solely because of his respect for the Wachowskis. And that's cool. From, yeah. From their earliest conversations, the Wachowskis let Tatters all know that this was a film that was going to break new ground visually. And they wanted something that aesthetically ran like completely contrary to the dark and gritty look of the matrix movies. They want a look that was, a, that they described as super deep focus super color saturated and very smooth, clean, and sharp. A, a visual choice that not only was very different from their own previous work, but very different from what was prevalent in movies being released around this time. Uh, the Dark Knight, for instance, 
came out two months after Speed Racer. So that gives you a good idea of where most movies were aesthetically at this time. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a, you know, just that title alone paints a very clear picture. <laughs> right. Uh, early planning for the film's look referenced the work of anime directors such as Hayao Miyazaki, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, and Masamune Shiro, as well as the hyper-real work of photographers David LaChapelle and Jill Greenberg. And when I read that in my research, that that was part of their visual style, especially David LaChapelle, who I, I was a big fan of back in like the early 2000s when he was at his heyday, mm-hmm. uh, if you are familiar with his work and the way that the colors just pop in his work, it is actually very obvious once you start watching this movie, how big of an influence he was on it. It was also pretty clear uh, very early on that Tattersall was going to have to work closely with John Gata and co-visual effects supervisor, Dan Glass. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned Glass yet on this series. He's worked on a couple of these. He's been working as a visual effects supervisor with the Wachowski since the Matrix Reloaded. And he'll actually continue to work with them on every Wachowski-directed product project, including Sense8 and the upcoming Matrix Resurrections. Okay, I thought I'd recognize the name. But yeah, so yeah. He, he's been there. He's just, he he's kind of, John Gata is kind of the, they're both credited as visual effects supervisor. John Gata gets all the press because he's, he, He's the guy who did bullet time and, you know, things like that. But Dan Glass is a very important element in this as well. Uh, But Gaeta in particular on this film was instrumental in helping create the film's look, uh, a technique that he called faux lensing, which refers to the way that in a lot of the shots, uh, a lot of these shots in the film were created by capturing multiple photographic elements, manipulating and combining them to create an image that couldn't be created using traditional camera techniques. Uh, and the reasoning behind this approach came from their discussion of anime, like classic anime's influence on the project. As Gaeta explains, uh, this is a quote from him. Uh, he says, anime tends to be a very, the, anime tends to be very purposefully expressive. It has a lot more to do with the way the filmmaker wants you to feel than what's real. It's often not a literal attempt at drawing a simulation of reality, but more about enabling the emotional part of the scene to be visualized in some stylistic way. So they're not there. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know this, but they're clearly not going for realism here. They're going for a feeling. They're going for a vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yes. That's by far my the the critique of this movie that irritates me the most like everywhere the ones a lot of the ones that i've seen where they're like the physics of this are ridiculous and i'm like okay even i get that's not the point here that's not what we're going for (laughs) yes i'm not going to speed racer to to watch days of thunder you know i'm I'm not trying to get a, a even that's not even a realistic experience, but I'm not supposed to get a realistic experience from this movie. Right. You know, I, I don't go in to a, an adaptation of a already very cartoonish cart racing cartoon, expecting this to be some dark realism. realism. Yeah. yeah. I watched right. one of those, like, you know, everything wrong with speed racer, Ugh, like 19 minutes or less or something. <laughs> and I was watching I it. And I was like, most of the stuff was just like this. Physics. Like, why physics, did they put physics, a beehive in the slingshot <laughs> instead of a bomb or something? Yeah, because, because it's, it's a fun. It's, it's fucking wacky races the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's Mario Kart the movie. It's it's like that that is such a idiotic complaint. Like, well, I got to fundamentally I, misunderstand what they're going for, and if and I don't know how it's not super obvious because they're beating you over the head with it. You know. <laughs> well, even uh, I you know. 
because even with it being so cartoony, I gotta say, at least it's consistent. You yeah. know, yeah. I, you know, they they stay consistent pretty much throughout that entire throughout the entire uh, time that you're watching, yeah. and um, I think that I think that helps because it's like it's like anything else that you establish, you know, as hey, this is how it is in this world, be it dialogue or visuals or or whatever it is, the physics of these cars. Hey, this is how it works here, and this is the story we're telling with that. Yeah, so, yeah. As, as long yeah. as the rule, if the if a movie creates its own rules and sticks to those rules, that's fine. It doesn't have to stick to the rules of other movies or even the real world. That that's the way I see it. Yeah, yeah. So to so what they ended up doing is they would basically bend a scene visually in ways that just couldn't be done using a camera out in the real world. Uh, this is something that they had done in the matrix films as well, especially like I mentioned before that burly brawl scene, but even the matrix had to have some sort of grounding in reality. Like the world of the matrix still had to kind of look like the real world to be believable. But with the concept that they had behind this film, they had the ability to take it even further. And one of the main techniques that they use to achieve the film's look involved shooting in layers. So basically, they would have four units shooting at once. Uh, the Wachowskis were on the first unit. James McTeague was their second unit director. Uh, and Chad Stahelski and David Leach, uh, who were the film's stunt coordinators. We talked about Chad Stahelski back on, uh, on our Matrix episodes. He was uh, the stunt coordinator there, as well as Keanu's stunt double. Uh, and of course... Uh, Stahelski and Leach would go on to create the John Wick franchise later on, uh, but they shot the third unit. So they were shooting a lot of the stunt stuff and the fourth unit was all special effects stuff. So every scene was shot four times with these scenes layered against each other to give it a look that mimicked animation cells. So they would oh, basically okay. shoot, they would shoot a scene and then they would shoot another scene and layer them over each other, uh, which you, you it's, it's very noticeable in say, when somebody's talking and there's a flashback and instead of flashing back, it's the background behind them. Yeah. Like that, that, you know, I, I love that so much. It's, it's a really great technique, I think, and really unique. And so Gata and Glass, they oversaw an in-house team called Exhaust that consisted of about 20 people who created three to 400 shots for the film. Uh, the rest of the film's effects were divided between a dozen different effects houses. And I, I noticed that was watching the, the movie and like when the credits came on, I just kept seeing like the names of these different effects houses, uh, like one after another, more than I can recall ever seeing on a movie. Yeah. Uh, so they had digital <laughs> domain uh, creating the on track racing scenes. Sony image works did the mountain race sequences, uh, a company called BUF that's in Paris did most of the rally racing uh, Cosmopolis, which is the city and Royalton's factory. And then other contributors included uh, ILM and evil eye pictures. Like they had a lot of big effects houses working on this nonstop. And these uh, effects were created all over the world. This was 2007 or so when all this is being done, 2006, 2007. So uh, technology was vastly different. Even then, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but even then it was vastly different than now. So basically they would have to email the files. They would work on it, email them in QuickTime format. And the Wachowskis would review each shot as it came in, give their feedback to the effects houses. The artists would work based on those notes. Three hours later, they would do the same thing again, have another look at all the effects like it, it's a very Jeez. yeah very bizarre process but that's the way it's got to be done when you're working on this something that's this heavy in effects well i mean trying to get some i mean trying to get 
even, you know, from a comic book perspective, trying to get something that looks consistent from page one to page 20 is tricky enough, let alone something like this, where you, it's not just one artist, you've got multiple houses with (laughs) multiple artists. Yeah. That's crazy. It's Mm crazy. And getting, getting films made is damn near impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So to have this, See, you know, I don't know that the average listener is going to really understand just what a monumental feat this is to get just this to look correct yeah. and consistent, let yeah. alone to get the whole thing done. But at the same time, I think the at, at that point in time, probably the only people that could have gotten that done and probably the only people that still only get it done uh, were the Wachowskis. Yeah. I mean, considering their trajectory at this point where, you know, you, you've, you've delivered something that stayed in the zeitgeist for half a decade and mm. then went on to be heavily involved with a massively popular uh, Alan Moore adaptation. Yeah. You kind of you have such a good will, both from audiences and studios, because all those things, no matter how you felt about them, generated a lot of money and a mm-hmm. lot of money based off their reputation for their special effects and their style. Yeah, that. I, I think the only people who could have encouraged the spending required to make something like this work were the Wachowskis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, the goodwill that they got just from the first matrix movie alone, mm-hmm. uh, something that sustained them for a probably the rest of their life. No, as we're going to see, as we continue this series, their goodwill uh, does run out <laughs> with, with studios um, largely as a result of the, the performance of this movie, uh, honestly, but uh, yeah, that so they, they, I, I adore this movie. So that, yeah, it, but it, it it did not do well at the box office. I mean, oh, I'm it aware. Was, I am aware. I yeah, was it, by myself in that theater. <laughs> it was just me in an, in an afternoon screening on opening weekend. Well, so it was released on May 9th, two thousand eight. It opened at number three at the box office uh, that weekend. And the reason one of the one I think of the main reasons it did not do well. Uh, from a financial standpoint was because it was up against Iron Man. Iron Man had come out a week before uh, and, and then the following week, but the, the following week it dropped down to number four, the box office. So it, you know, diminishing returns as, as is usually the case with any movie. Uh, and it went on to gross about $93 million worldwide, which is not mm. great. No. Uh, and that that's not just, I mean, not just in America, worldwide, it brought in 93 million. And that's considered a major failure considering the film's budget of about $120 million. And that's before marketing and all the other expenses that come with releasing a movie. Oh, God. Uh, critical reviews weren't kind either, with many saying that the filmmakers focused too much on the film's visual, uh, too little on its characters and story. Uh, so it, it, it just all around was kind of getting pummeled by both critics and audiences alike. Wow. So uh, that brings us to present day, Gary. It's funny because this film has been reevaluated a lot in its in its recent years since its release. Uh, it often appears on lists and articles about underrated or misunderstood films. But I, I am wondering what kind of reviews you were able to find on the internet because I feel like as much as as much as the opinion on this movie has changed over the years, I have a feeling there's still quite a lot of people who are are not fans. Yeah, even most recently, there are people still. Uh going back to revisit Speed Racer, and then are racing to their keyboards. Uh, ah, there it <laughs> and, is. And letting the world Got know that, that somebody needs a nap. <laughs> Let's see. We've got Henry here who says, 
I don't know why this is hailed as some hidden gem or underappreciated masterpiece. It's obnoxious and annoying, and it looks awful. Little known that that's uh, actually Henry Rollins writing that. Uh, yeah, he's still makes it salty about not getting that part. <laughs> Parker from April of 2021 says, Speed Racer is why Matthew Fox quit acting. <laughs> quit acting? <laughs> <laughs> I just love that review. Wait, was it Matthew Fox quit acting? Was it quit acting? <laughs> These are all half star reviews, by the way, and it's important to say that because this is my Todd's half star review of the day. Uh, my person who thinks like Todd gets <laughs> a half star <laughs> review. Oh, give it to me! Give it to me! Come on! This phenomenal movie, filled with astonishing acting and impressive visual effects, invites the viewer on a journey of self-discovery. The shallow message that the film first appears to have very quickly transforms into a surreal neo-Napoleonic impressionism classic adventure. The avant-garde elements present in this movie will entice any viewer to experience the burgundy finest cinema. Every single shot and scene is perfectly crafted. I could barely tell it was CGI. The classical French colors are present in every frame. All of this movie could be painted and hanged in the finest museums of Europe. The appropriate performance by Emil Hirsch as Speed Racer, supported by one of Natalie Portman's best performance ever as Trixie. That is wrong. Uh, <laughs> she, I was Natalie like, Portman's, you know what? Natalie I'm Portman's right so good in this that she makes <laughs> herself look like Christina Ricci. The transformer that review is going. And I was asking myself, how did this person give it a half star? But I think we answered it right there. So I think they're being, so, okay, maybe they're so being sarcastic. I, have, the I think they're time. being a hundred percent sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Making fun of people that two, like the movie. So two thoughts on what, on, on you thinking that that person sounds like me. First of all, I'm uh, incredibly flattered because that person seems to at least be very articulate. Well, let me, let me um, but actually, se- and second, and secondly, how dare you? <laughs> well, well, now that we've said that, I think Miles is right because as I'm like scrolling through it, I only read the first half before, but it says, uh, <laughs> because this is the other part, the appropriate performance by Emil Hirsch as Speed Racer, supported by one of Natalie Portman's best performances ever as Trixie, matching only her mastery in the Star Wars prequels, will bring the viewer into the story like nothing I've ever seen before. Alexander Skarsgård, a speed racer's brother, is short of sublime. The Wachowski's perfectly crafted script shows why they deserve the Oscar. (laughs) The long German cinematic experience is clearly visible here. An obligatory movie to any who consider, consider themselves living humans. Like, I can't even be mad at the effort that went into that like it's no, genuinely no. Uh, it's a genuinely funny review that's a great review nice <laughs> uh, uh dreamer says uh half star the wachowskis overdosed on red pills gave birth to this fucking car wreck which is a metaphor for their entire career after the first matrix 135 minutes of pure agony and suffering the ugliest looking film i've ever seen i'd rather be tied to a chair with my eyes wide open forced to watch the fucking cat in the fucking hat back to back rather than endure another goddamn minute of this abortion Wow. Oh, <laughs> All right. Wow. Wow. Ben says half star Trump decided to run for president after watching Speed Racer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but it kills me. <laughs> Brayden says this is a truly harrowing film. I swear to Christ. 
that I had ingested no illicit substances on the evening that I watched this, yet I swear that it got to a certain point in this acid-soaked nightmare where I was certain that I had been watching this mess for two hours already, and surely we were approaching the climax, only to find out that there were another two big races to endure. Time hasn't been the same for me since. I detest this film and what it did to me. I was shitting Skittles for three weeks after exposure to this neon garbage color palette. Wachowskis? More like Wachowskis. <laughs> Wachowskis. I've said to my friends since that I know there are technically worse films that have been made than Speed Racer. However, it just so happens to be the the film that I have enjoyed the least out of any movie that I've ever bothered to watch in my life. Wow. And uh, complaining, a- about, complaining about the number of races in a film called Speed Racer seems a little bit odd. I think he was complaining more about the pacing. He was saying he was, he felt like the movie should be over by now and there's still two more races to go. Okay. So um, you touched on something that became part of the, I would say running joke in, in criticism at the time where Everyone was talking about, oh, you have to be on drugs. You have to be on drugs to watch Speed Racer. That was the joke everyone always made when they saw the trailer or when they were talking about discourse about the film. And I remember reading, um, I want to say it was like Ain't It Cool News at the time because that's where we were in culture at the time. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And the, the, the relatively positive review that was given, I remember specifically say, was kind of pushed back against that saying, you don't need to take drugs to enjoy Speed Racer. Watching Speed Racer is like being on drugs in the best way. <laughs> yeah. And with that said, you can take drugs and enjoy Speed Racer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like <laughs> you do you. <laughs> well, Not yeah. heroin or anything like that, though. Our oh, final review mean. comes from Michelle, who did step it up and give one star to this one movie. whole star. One, one whole star. And she says, This movie is like a love letter to the Speed Racer anime. If that love letter was written by a psychopathic murderer to the dismembered victim. Speaking of victims, I feel like one after trying to choke down this abomination. As a lifelong fan of the franchise, I still get chills when I hear the theme music and the sound of the Mach 5 gunning its engine. So I'm doubly annoyed that Hollywood got a hold of another one of my childhood favorites and performed this colostomy of a movie. How this film was ever allowed to be seen publicly simply mystifies me. Wachowski sisters, you have entertained me with your other creations, but you will answer for this crime. That sounds like a threat. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That sounds like a threat. It does sound like a threat. It also sounds like someone had not seen any of the follow-up animation for Speed Racer um, because they're also very bad. <laughs> like the remake. It, so there's there, like, there was the new adventures and there was uh, there was a cartoon that was released in anticipation of this one which was oh. fucking awful yeah. um but i don't know I, I i never i never ever like jump on board of the, the you ruined my childhood train i think nah, that's, that's stupid a, your childhood is still there you yeah know. i yeah. i hate that criticism to to basically toss away this this thing or making any sort of nuanced conversation about it like oh well they ruined my childhood or you know my childhood's <laughs> forever tainted by this this you know monstrous attempt to to make a hollywood film it, it's just it it's the laziest kind of thing you can say about a movie yeah oh, I'm, I'm curious then while we're talking about people who need a nap uh <laughs> in the past we have discussed this film actually we did an episode on it on our uh, old podcast years ago 
I think our, I think our buddy Zach Daigle sat in on that. I don't remember, but anyway, what, what I do distinctly remember is that Gary was not a fan of this movie at all at the time, but over the years, you know, this has happened where we've discussed films and opinions have changed or at least altered a little bit, you know? So uh, I am curious, Gary, before we get going on any more discussion on this, where you fell on this movie after watching it this time. Um, so in the, in the, uh, what, what's the word that I'm not, I'm not fancy like you guys, the, the, <laughs> the Wachowskis, Wachowskis, there's filmography works too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah filmography. Um, I actually have to say that, that I enjoyed this movie a lot more this time. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I still think the colors gross me out at certain points. Like, it's just a lot. Like, I think some of it just, it does a lot not of visual make any, stimulation. Yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense to me. But I got it. And uh, I think this movie, I, I would actually say I think this movie has the most heart out of any movie they've, ha- they've made. I agree. I mean, that's been one of your criticisms towards them is that people often feel uh, robotic in their movies, which is not untrue. Uh, but, like... The the especially especially mom mom and pops like they're just they they are kind of the heart. I mean, John Goodman's the heart of this yeah, movie you, to me. You, <laughs> like, you, 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 they they cast those roles superbly. I mean, Susan they, Sarandon and and John Goodman. Susan Sarandon are, and John Goodman are so perfect in those roles yes. that it's like mm. you've done half the work just by hiring them. It's you know? fucking insane, but there's been a moment that I've been sitting there, and yeah, and and John Goodman and Susan Sarandon are a big part of, it, especially John Goodman, uh, and just because like Susan Sarandon's like kind of absent, it feels like during a lot of the movie. Yeah, I do wish uh, she was in it a little bit more, but yes. Um, but there, uh, there, there were moments I've been thinking about this movie where I'm like, ah, oh, this this is my favorite Wachowski's movie, maybe, maybe because it's yeah. uh, <laughs> it's it's it. it just feels better to watch it i still don't think they have a movie that i'm just like dying to watch over and over again um Mm. i don't think that this even the original matrix does you know no like i still like i I still like i I like the matrix i appreciate what the matrix is but i appreciate here's the thing i have with them is that so that phone interview i mentioned earlier too that i had there was another part to it where they talk about um, the technology and doing what they can do in the editing and like nobody's ever touched this or done that. And the, the, the last part of that interview, Lana goes on to say, uh, here's, here's a quote actually. And then we started talking about cubism and the way it offers this construction of art based on the imagination of perspective. We can make the first cubist film because we could have the back of someone's head and the front of their face at the same time. But we knew in just the way that Picasso was hunted and rocks were hurled at him when he first unveiled Guernica. He was literally hounded by a mob out of the city. We knew that adults cannot accept challenges to their conventional aesthetic, the aesthetic that they're bonded to. If you assault that aesthetic, they will rage in this really primitive way. So we thought maybe we can make it for kids because kids are more open aesthetically than adults are. So it all it all like makes sense. But something clicked with me there where I started to get this impression, and even in the DeVry interview I was watching, it's like, they're really obsessed with making art. Like, they're yeah. really obsessed with being artists, which is fine, you know, if that's your thing. But 
I don't think that they're ever going to have like also an, a completely entertaining movie for me. Like, well, a, I think, I think I, I see where you're coming from. I don't necessarily agree. Uh, I do think that they like to push back against expectations a lot. Uh, I think they like to push the envelope a lot as far as what is accepted in a movie. Uh, and I think that goes back all the way to bound, but especially with the matrix. Uh, and I, I think the matrix is, is incredibly entertaining beginning to end. Uh, we, we, we talked about that ad nauseum during that episode, but it's one of the most influential films of, of the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, and this movie I find to be very entertaining beginning to end, but I, I, I mean, I kind of understand when people do push back on it because it is an assault on the senses in a way that movies usually are not. And it, that can make some people uncomfortable. And know? it's good to know. I mean, I think a lot of art is, uh, a lot about it is intent. We say that a lot too. Like, what are you trying to do? Did they succeed in what they set out to do? And they did, yeah. I think. Um, so I try to give credit for that where it's due. Like, not everybody's trying to make everything for everybody. And, uh, and they straight out said in that interview i just mentioned that they went for the kids because they're like you guys are going to be okay and that's it's kind of how i felt like when i first started watching it again this time where i was like oh wow they watch uh you ever see that cartoon flapjack or whatever it is yeah uh, yeah it felt like i was like somebody just watched flapjack and they're like do two hours of this <laughs> <laughs> and i was well, like i've enjoyed that cartoon a little bit from here and there but like in 15 minute increments right <laughs> it was like now we got like two and a half hours of like of just like insanity and uh which is cool i mean i i like i said i i, I don't think i don't think necessarily it was made for me so that's that's even okay i can appreciate what they're doing um and and like i said it has heart like you mentioned iron man and i had forgotten that iron man came out during the same time but i should have remembered that because i'm a nerd but the one that I thought of was the dark Knight, Yeah. And um, the dark Knight came out around this time. And you would, you would say that they're two totally different movies uh, and made two different ways, like completely dark uh, brooding movie versus this movie with what it is. But they both also like what's amazing about them is they both really reflect exactly what, the story is at the heart of the movie too, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. I thought like dark Knight is obviously the dark Knight, And this movie is at the end of the day, it's still about, I think film crit Hulk had a review about it, talking about like a lot of movies are about uh, the, uh, the hero overcomes the odds or something, you know, like nobody believes he could do it, that he doesn't pushes through, but in speed racer, it's all about his family and his friends mm -hmm. that do believe him the whole time. And then still at the end, he put, he proves them right. And, uh, and it was mm -hmm. just like, yeah, speed racer is overly bright and flashy, but it also is that kind of story, I guess. Right. Exactly. That's the story they're trying to tell. I mean, th this is speed racer really is kind of the, definition of like what what is considered a cult film you know it's, it's a movie that did not do well at the box office uh, a movie that critics thought was they called it garish they called it style over substance but then in the what's it been 13 years since it came out it's been reappraised by audiences and critics and gary horns the world over <laughs> and, and that's nothing new i mean films like donnie darko fight club those were considered those are considered like classics now but 
they were both critical and commercial failures at the time. Like, this is nothing new or nothing unique to this film. But, uh, you know, the, Speed Racer is admittedly excessive. It's, it is, for one, it's long. It's two hours and 15 minutes long, which for a movie that's aimed at kids is long. It's too long. It, it should really be 45 minutes shorter to, to truly be a kid's movie because kids don't have that much of an attention span. That's a good but point. That, that, that being said, I don't think there's a lot that I would cut from the film. Uh, I mean, the races could be shorter, but the races are sort of part of the point of the film. <laughs> and they each uh, have their own identity too. So yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. all fun. Uh, I think you could cut out pretty much everything with, with, with Sprittle and Chim Chim and I'd be okay with that because they kind of get on my nerves. But uh, that that's not uh, that's not so much that it would really make bi- that big of a difference. Although I do think the cutting between them and Royalton's big speech about stock prices and shit uh, is very jarring. And I think that's my that's that's the biggest flaw in the movie from a filmmaking standpoint. To me, is you know the the scene where Royalton is giving his big villain speech to Speed oh, yeah. about his intentions, yeah. <clears throat> and then they cut with this zany chase. On a on a golf cart with with Sprittle and the monkey, <laughs> yeah. uh, it just feel every time they cut back and forth. I'm like, what this? Uh, you get like whiplash, you know. It's very strange. But I mean, th- this this film is absolutely the cinematic equivalent equivalent of giving a bunch of unsupervised eleven year olds as much soda as they could have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I think the best example of that, yeah, is Sprittle and Chip Chip. Uh, yeah, playing the uh, solo from Free Bird. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's very strange a very strange choice but and this is also for a family film it's pretty complicated plot wise like all of the talk of corrupt corporate politics and rigged races would probably go over the head of a lot of kids in the audience somebody but, somebody did say somewhere that were like uh the the speech you're talking about was like if you thought that the uh the uh what's what's the guy from the matrix uh the fucking guy in the room from the architect the, yeah they were like oh. if you thought for, this is for people who thought the architect speech wasn't boring and, and banal enough. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, the, the subject of his speech, I guess, could be seen that way. But Roger Allen gives such a great he's mustache so twirling villain performance. I think he's really great in it. And also all of that stuff, like the rigged races, the corporate politics, that's the stuff that's prevalent in the original TV series. Like, this is not an invention that the Wachowskis made. Uh, so the the question is then why did it fail at the at the box office? Uh, it for one it had stiff competition. Uh, it, I do think it was a bit ahead of its time uh, in mm-hmm. the way that it was made. I, I don't know that I don't know when it would be made for, but it certainly wasn't two thousand eight. Uh, I mean, this was a property speed racer. People know what speed racer is, but it wasn't exactly at its height of popularity in the mid two thousands. Uh, but more than anything, I think it just went against the grain for what audiences expected at the time. I mean, like, like we've we've mentioned it a couple of times that this was released just a couple of months before The Dark Knight, a film that acted as sort of the pinnacle for gritty realism in filmmaking. Audiences were looking for these types of movies. Movies, even superhero movies, were very cynical at the time, were very trying to be gritty and trying to be edgy like that's what movies were trying to do in the mid 2000s and then here comes speed racer with bright colors and a fairly old-fashioned story of good guys versus bad guys uh and i think a lot of audiences might have thought that was childish or naive when they saw the trailer i think i i I think that's 
a big part of it. But to me, that the, the optimistic tone of the movie, this is kind of going into what Gary was saying about it. Uh, I think that's one of its charms. I, I think that's what they're going for. And I think they nailed it. And I think that's part of what makes the movie fun uh, because th- this is a movie that it announces what it is from the very first frame. And when, by the first mm-hmm. frame, I mean, before we see a character or a title, you get this kaleidoscope of color that accompanies the WB logo. And it tells you that you're in for something very big and very loud and very bright and very unlike anything that we've seen before. Uh, like ve- and very different even from what we expect from which Wachowski movie, which, you know, in the, the Matrix movies were muted color and grittiness, you know, and this is incredibly different and it's very different in tone because this is you know you say it's got a lot of heart it's a very sincere movie Uh, and i think sincerity to a lot of audiences comes across as corny you know i I think so but i i still feel like even critics like tried to read a lot into this which i mean i'm sure it's there because it's the wachowskis there's like parts of it but what i think a big part of this movie is that as I think they were obsessed of aesthetically what they could do. Like what was, what were the possibilities of what they could achieve here? Sure. Um, they, they, I throw back to these interviews constantly, but it just, they don't do many. So uh, Lana talks a lot about that. She used to get frustrated with like, like movie critics never mentioned aesthetics. Like that was never a part of the subject, but that was like one of the first things that she noticed. She, she, she mentioned in the DeVry interview, like it's, it's pretty fantastic. Actually. She, she mentions a month apart, Moonrise Kingdom and Snow White and the Huntsman came out. And she was like, literally, these are the same two movies. Like they have exactly the same story. Like she, she lays it out in the interview, like exactly like plot point by plot point. Like this right. is exactly, here's the environment they're in. This is what happened. And the, these two movies are the exact same movie, but she, nobody ever said that because just the set, the aesthetics mattered so much that nobody pieced it together. She was like, watch apocalypse now and watch Conan the barbarian. She was like, those two movies are literally the same movie. Like, or she, or you know, she's like at least the arc of the story is right. exactly right. the same, and she's like, but they're just aesthetically, you don't ever connect it. Uh, and, uh, so she, she's got like this big obsession. So she, she, you can tell she's like really, like down to to. Uh, I guess where I'm going is another point she made is one of her favorite moments, like a peak moment in in cinema for her. She mentions was 2001 that she saw 2001 it was the first movie she ever saw that she got like pissed off at because she like saw it and then she couldn't wrap her brain around what is this thing at the end that shows up and blah 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 (laughs) and she was talking to her dad and she's like what was what is happening there like i don't understand it he's like well i think it's like the image of god or i think that's what they're going for or something and she's and then she said she made her dad take her back to see it again. And then she went into it looking at like, okay, this is God. And then she's like, okay, but what else is going on here? So she starts looking at it more. So she just becomes obsessed with like multiple meanings in a movie and like just how you can make a movie that you, you're not going to grasp the first time you see it. It requires multiple viewings or like a piece of literature that requires multiple readings. And anyway, I, I say all of that to say, 
they're very obsessed with the art side of it again is is going yeah. back to what i originally said and so i think that even they knew with speed rate they're just some lucky motherfuckers they're like really artsy filmmakers <laughs> that somehow well they're really artsy into, film. like they they got mega millions to make movies well they're they're really artistic filmmakers who also you know they have they have obsessions with things like philosophy like these high-minded ideas but they also like cartoons and comic books and things that are considered more lowbrow and they have this blending of the two especially in the matrix movies and this now that it goes a little well even later on like jupiter ascending is very pulp but i i think that's what it is is that they but that doesn't always connect with audiences i think because it when you have multiple influences like that coming in at where they're they're merging it doesn't always strike audiences uh, the way that they might want to. And I don't feel I so what, bad for them because it feel it really feels like they knew eventually somebody was going to catch on. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. somebody's like they're like let's get away. We're not getting money as we can. <laughs> What's interesting? Uh, so to go back to what you were saying about how uh, you know they, they're obsessed with cartoons and comic books and stuff like that. I think what's interesting about them is they are they're not upset they're they're obsessed with taking something seriously they they take speed racers seriously but to them taking something seriously is not about making it grounded or realistic and that's yeah. usually what what people assume when you want to take something seriously it's a grounded realistic representation whereas they show you what they see as the cartoon in its best form sure. the writing for these characters is cartoon writing but it's not cartoon writing in a this is bad way. It's yeah, it's not are, looking down on it. No, it's like we are we are these actors are performing the roles of cartoons as live action people. Yeah, but that's not a bad thing. I think it's an interesting from a, a performance perspective because everyone has to be very aware of their movements at all times. Which it, yeah, well, and I love that. Well, what you're I, saying there too, Miles, is just I think one of the things that changed during this viewing of the of speed racer for me was me um i don't know i have i found it really hard as much as i would love to to come back in battling and uh i can make jokes and stuff but like watching it this time i found it really hard uh given the state of the world today and sometimes mentally where i go <laughs> like i'm just like <laughs> i'm watching this movie and i'm like i can't hate something this wholesome like yeah. i can't like <laughs> right. i just <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, so that, fucking sweet. <laughs> that that goes back to me, like where where I mentioned its sincerity, because that's something that when I when I initially saw this in two thousand eight, I was wowed by the visuals. Me too. It's all, and it's and I've seen it probably I don't know pro I've probably seen it half a dozen times at this point, and the last couple of times is only when I've realized like where the, the that sincerity and that optimism and that wholesomeness has really kind of jumped out at me because like for, for you know you mentioned this before one, one of you guys did where uh, i think it, gary you were quoting the the film crit hulk article where yeah there's not like yeah there's a villain in royalton and stuff but really this is not like a hero's journey this is not apocalypse now this is not a guy having to make this big journey to to become who he needs to be speed is fully formed as a great racer at the beginning of the movie you know, but you get some stuff in flashbacks and stuff, but for really what the movie's about is like for the racer family, yeah, winning is important. Racing is important because he even says like you race to win, but it's not, not if it's at the expense of integrity 
and sportsmanship. That's more important to these characters because they're just like the racer family. They're just good people. And sometimes people, audiences have a hard time accepting characters who are just good, sincere people. Cause I, I do think that sincerity flows over into the re- relationship between family members. Cause this is a family that is not dysfunctional. They all love each other. I mean, there, there's some, a little bit of squabbling, uh, but they stick together and, that's maybe that's a little cheesy to people, but I don't see anything wrong with that, with, with it being a little bit cheesy. I will say uh, this. I had a big problem with pop having the interview uh, with uh, what's his face Royalton or whatever, like the yeah. um, just <laughs> where he's like, you know, maybe this is a Wachowski's parenting issue, but he was just like, <laughs> in there, just like, I've seen men like you and I know what you do and that everything about this leaves a bad taste in my mouth and yada, yada, yada. But if whatever speed wants to do, we'll do it. If he wants to sign up, I'm like, no pop fucking be a dad. <laughs> and it, it's so funny because it, it mirrors later on the movie where he refuses to let speed join the, the, uh, the rally race. Yeah. Well, that's true yeah yeah well and, and on a side note uh between how much talk there is about family combined with the car racing and the uh the the disregard for physics uh this feels like it could be a part of the fast and furious franchise at times <laughs> yeah it, 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 absolutely well especially what the fa- that has the greatest franchise becomes Right, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, as I was so, watching this, I was like, they're they're saying family more than Ben Diesel does in the, man, in the later. I swear to God, days. yeah. If you'd have gave me like Speed Racer, like sitting up at the starting line at one point, and like the end of uh, Tokyo Drift, like Ben Diesel just like pulls up next to him, <laughs> <laughs> Ben Diesel as Racer X. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> I think what I appreciate about this film is that it is so uncynical because I don't think especially compared to superhero films, I feel like we were deconstructing the genre before the genre ever fully formed. We had Dark Knight right. and Watchmen before the MCU was ever formed. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So yeah. I, I felt like we already gotten that, that dark, gritty, realistic, cynical superhero stuff without ever getting the whimsy and the kind of wonder that that genre represents. And the same with these cartoons. And I think the Wachowskis tap into something with this film where, like you said, it, it's wholesome, it's sweet, but there is a general sense of wonder about the world. Their whole thing, this, this like, like as you put it, a kaleidoscopic image on the screen is all about looking at something and seeing beauty, whether it be through racing or your family or just having to do the right thing. There is beauty in everything that they do here. And mm. I think that's so interesting. And I, 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 I can definitely see from where Gary's coming from with the state of things as they are now, seeing a movie that just doesn't give a shit about anything but being pure is such a, a whiplash moment now. Well, the, mm. the, the thing is, when you start talking about the movie as part of the overall Wachowski filmography, I was thinking about this as I was watching it and and afterwards, as I was thinking about this episode, like we've talked a lot about the themes of the Wachowskis movies, themes of identity, et cetera. And where I think this really fits in uh, talking uh, from that point of view is that it is much like the matrix MV for Vendetta speed racer is 
essentially they are all about revolutions against like the man for lack of a better term. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like in in the matrix, you've got Neo fighting against the machines, not necessarily because the reality inside the machines is bad uh, because people inside the matrix have it better off than people outside the matrix, honestly, but because it's a lie, it's false. You know, Uh, the same goes for V for Vendetta, like the Norse fire party took over they came into power because of a disaster. And that disaster was a lie, not that it didn't happen, but because they created it, you know, uh, that right. this virus is, is something they created. So yes, it's another false, uh, another falsity that, that brought the, the, the man into power. So in speed racer society, giant corporations seem to kind of rule everything, but nobody is like noticeably oppressed like mom and pop racer, and their family, they seem to be living a good suburban life. You see mm-hmm. her out there in her lounge chair and he's cutting the grass, you know, typical suburban life. But these big corporations, they, they, they're fixing races. They're creating another falsity, another lie by fixing races. And racing is the only thing that speed cares about, you know. Uh, and to find out that it is all based on a lie is, a, is kind of a big deal. So the rest of the movie is him fighting against that, you know. Uh, it, it's really like like in the Matrix and Envy for Vendetta, the concealing of the truth. It's that that's really what the protagonists are fighting against is is the lie, this concealing of the truth. It's because they uh, write movies like with Rage Against the Machine playing in the background, and right, yes, they're just like uh, they they <laughs> telling they everyone to problem. wake up, yeah. And and the, and the the thing with like V for Vendetta was it was like government overreach and like gover- mm-hmm. government, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, this is about corporate overreach or like corporate power. The the difference between the two usually is it feels like uh, from my limited knowledge that like sometimes corporate overreach is just like you can still do your thing just uh, to use another racing term, stay in your lane. And don't don't try to like challenge us. Let us. Well, that and that's the thing. These are protagonists who are challenging. They're they're challenging the status quo. Like Neo refuses to accept a world ruled by machines, even though. Before he was awakened from the Matrix, he had no idea. Uh, v and Evie refuse to live in this police state that the Norse Fire Party has created. And Speed refuses to accept that this is just how the racing world is, that these are just fixed races that are designed to inflate the price of oil. Like he refuses to believe that. He believes that racing, he has more integrity than that. And he believes that it means more. And I, I love that. I love that you that even with a quote unquote kids movie, the Wachowskis are still like this is a very anti corporation, anti capitalism screen. Oh, hundred percent from the Wachowskis. Once you start digging into it, ironically funded by a giant corporation and Warner Brothers, but that you know you got to do what you got to do, I guess, to get your, <laughs> right. your message out there. But well, yeah, I mean it, it's tough. Like you, things get labeled all the time. I mean, I think the the main point with like with with speed's idea is that like it's it is important to him to race like that's what he lives for and winning is important but only if it's on a level playing field that he wins only if it's done fairly yeah Yeah, like exactly it's it's better to know that i'm actually the best at this yeah exactly that that everybody had the same chance and i still won like i want to i want to be the best like the actual best at this, not like a uh, faux best at this. Yeah. And I, I've even seen some analysis of this that dig into it from, you know, much like we did with the matrix from the, the Wachowski's uh, 
identity, the fluidity of identity point of view uh, that we've talked about in especially the Matrix movies, but a little bit in V for Vendetta as well. Uh, but with, from the point of view of the Rex Racer character or the Racer X character, because he is someone who literally changes who they are, changes their identity, has to face the you know the world as a different person, and does it you know even with the aid of surgery and whatnot so you can dig into this stuff really far if you want that motherfucker to. got plastic surgery and put on a mask yeah just in case. <laughs> D- double double <laughs> identity change so uh and, but, and, but, and plus I, I don't know by the way why you would get plastic surgery and go from a porter to like you need matthew fox's nose no offense but i mean of all parts <laughs> of matthew fox like, he would at least kept the same like not your big ass honker <laughs> Another thing I thought was interesting when you were bringing up the history that a lot of people associated with music were attached because the way this film is kind of initially set up reminds me of a music bio. Like we see Racer or Speed, you know, reflecting on his life in in the locker room, much in the way like Dewey Cox. like, like, or he's got to think uh, about his whole life before he like, goes like, you know what? Cash the, and Folsom the I was of Walt about Walt. to say the other day I, I went on a uh, fucking uh, whole trip down memory lane and I watched literally back to back. I watched uh, Walk the Line. I watched Ray and then I watched uh, I'd never seen it before, but I watched uh, uh, what's the Hank Williams one? Uh, I just forgot the name of it with uh, the one with, uh, with the one with, with Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, I watched that one. But yeah, they just they just love like a fucking sitting in a lonely room and thinking about the past kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and I so I, it, 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 I never put that together, even though when I was watching this, I was like, this looks like fucking walk the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, is, Dewey Cox like makes fun of it, but when, when yeah. you go back and watch those actual <laughs> movies, you're like, no, this is like they straight up did this. This yeah. is yeah. And I, I, I love think- that you can dig into all of this stuff with this movie uh, if you if you want to, because the Wachowskis are very intelligent. Uh, so there's, yeah. there's a chance that a lot of this stuff was definitely on their minds. But what I love about this movie, I mean, that stuff's fun to think about and talk about. And I love the sincerity of the movie. I love its heart. And I love how fun it is. And mm-hmm. essentially, like, that is what I get out of this movie is how fu- it, it, it captures what it feels like to watch anime. You know, like this is a film that's totally unconcerned with reality. Uh, it hasn't been like focus group to death. Like this is what audience want to want to see. This is what Chelsea's going. This is the movie we want to make. And we're going to make it regardless, even if audi- audiences don't know they want to see this yet. And the audiences weren't ready for it. Uh, it took them a decade before people really started uh, loving this movie. It's a movie with, it's got cars doing car foo against each other. It's got John Goodman <laughs> fighting ninjas or nonjas. Uh, and it's got also an evil- as a strong man, like they, they, they yeah. give you that information late. And I'm like, yep. I, I, I want this backstory. I yeah, want to yeah. see yeah. John Goodman uh, wrestling. This is a movie that has an evil business meeting on a truck filled with piranhas. It's like amazing. This, this is, it doesn't, and it doesn't have these things because Warner brothers did a focus group and found out that this is what audiences wanted it. It has these things because the Wachowskis thought they were going to be fucking cool, you know, and they are like, they're yeah. just fun. They're just throwing things in there I that mean, are fun. The, like the first, you, earlier, you mentioned the car that throws the honeycomb. This is fun. You know, the, the first time I watched this movie, like, and, and still to this day, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you this movie doesn't make me want to throw up at points, but, but so do roller coasters sometimes. And they're still fun. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, that's just part of it, you know. Like I, I this time watching it, knowing the Wachowskis, like going through the series, I, I had more of an appreciation for the fact that they're like. Do I think they lean a little bit into wanting to be artists too much more than focusing on the human side of the stories? Most of the time, yes. Uh, this time, they they might have found their best like balance of it. I, I I do appreciate pushing the envelope, but like I, I see, you know, like we we've seen. I'll, I'll throw to the interview one more time, and I swear to God, I won't do it anymore. But th- one of the things Lana said specifically was the depiction of Mary. Like if you're thinking of Jesus and like Mary, like Mary has looked the same for hundreds of years in every depiction. Like what if yeah. you tried to switch up Mary? Like there was just like this, it, it, it didn't make me think like, okay, yeah. Like we've seen movies look the same way. Like what if, what if there's a different way to do this? Like we mentioned the walk the line thing, but that's legit. Like, I mean, there is speed sitting in the room at the beginning doing that thing, the Dewey Cox thing or whatever, but the real shit happens when speeds on the track and the shit's just like flowing through his brain all at the same time. And it's like popping up on screen. He's like racing his ghost brother on the track while he's remembering being a kid at the same time. It's like, just like popping in and out, like around his head. Never stop moving. Yeah. It's just like, when that's, that is more, well, God help me. I know that's how my brain works half the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Todd, um, I don't know what your history, well, before we wrap it up, I'm curious, what your what was your history on this? Because I don't know if we ever talked about it before or what you thought about it prior to this. I think, uh, you know, as much as I love the superhero movies that came out around this time, Iron Man, Dark Knight, um, you know, arguably some of the best comic book movies made to date. I think I fell victim to them in watching this and expecting something in the same vein. So when I first saw this, I was kind of like, all right, I get it. It's not for me, but eh, all right, whatever. But going into this now for the, for the viewing for this episode, um, I, I really was able to just kind of put all of that aside and watch this in and of itself. And, I actually had a blast. It is yeah. a lot of fun. And if you can, you know, as, and I guess that's a benefit of time, you know, once this sure. thing, you know, gets out of whatever is playing at the multiplex at the time, and you're able to view it in and of itself, apart from everything else, that's where I think all this stuff sort of blossoms. And, you know, you, yeah. And yeah, we start to see the layers of, Yes, this top layer, this, you know, superficial layer is super colorful, super loud, very cartoony. But as you start to peel that away, you start to see some of the things, some of the things that characters were doing that were very subtle. I was watching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like an ogre. (laughs) But I was watching and I don't know why this stuck out to me, but I, I was watching Emile Hirsch walking around the breakfast table in that scene early on. And noticing his slow, deliberate movements. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting choice, you know, for someone named Speed who has gone very fast this whole life. Uh, You know, and I I started to try to unravel that in my head, you know, and seeing that we talked a little bit about the time period that this came out in. And I think it did fall victim to the movies of this time. But looking at it, I don't think 
that started here. I think it started in the eighties. It started in the eighties with Tim Burton's Batman. And it yeah. was a progression from there, even, even including the Joel Schumacher stuff, which of the comic book stuff at the time, if Joel Schumacher's Batman movies had come out at the same time as this, that would that would be a perfect back to back to back viewing. They're yeah, super honestly, colorful, very now, cartoony. Honestly, I'm now I'm now picturing Joel Schumacher's version of Speed Racer, and I think yes. I would really enjoy that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm now yeah. picturing that Joel Schumacher went into Batman and Robin and was like, oh, "I was getting a little dark for me." The part of the stuff I liked about Batman was the fun too. Yeah. And he I, was just, trying I, to I like, just want to he see was trying to hit the brakes a little bit. <laughs> I just want to see a racer X with nipples on. on his <laughs> that's of that's suit. really at the end of the day. We, Todd, you touched on something really quick that, that's worth saying, too, is that ML Hirsch doesn't get enough credit as an actor like that guy's a fucking phenomenal actor. Yeah. I mean, he got nominated for an Oscar a few years after this. But all right. Well, fuck me, I guess. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but Wait, at, for, at the time for uh, Into the Wild. Okay, I was gonna say yeah, that's right. Yeah, into the wild. wild. But but I mean, even in the girl next door, which I own, like I still stand great, by as is like a legitimately good movie, especially movie, at yeah. the uh, yeah. the death of Lord, raunchy sex comedies. Or yeah, whatever. Lords of Dogtown's really good. Really Lord good movie. Yeah, yeah. Emma yeah. uh, Hirsch is is really great at whatever role you fit him mm-hmm. into. I think that he nails that that sincere tone that the Wachowskis are going for with that character. And that's this. it. He always and it's, feels it's a sincere. shame that the movie didn't do well because he actually like fired his agent the Monday after this movie came out. Uh, because yes, yeah, so, uh, which is which is a shame because I, I I hope that now he can look back at it and and see how how good it is, you know, yeah. and and how much people really enjoy it now. So. This is the part we, we normally do this on uh, towards the end of the episode. And this was for such a unique film, uh, a movie that even, you know, uh, almost a decade and a half later, nothing has come out that looks remotely or seems remotely like this movie, including the further movies by the Wachowskis. So in, in our further viewing segment, it's going to be an interesting one to try to pair up because I'm curious what you guys would pick if you were doing a double feature with Speed Racer. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> well, that's a pretty fucking good idea. Don. <laughs> That, that's, that's the one. I, and the reason <laughs> I said like it like one. that is because the reason I said it like that is because I assumed all of us were going to say it at the same time. <laughs> I got a different one, but that's no, a great I, one. I would say I, I was I was definitely thinking of uh, Scott Pilgrim just because I, I I hesitate to say like did it better or anything, but like I feel like Scott Pilgrim this movie helped Scott Pilgrim be able to exist. This movie walked so that Scott Pilgrim could run. Is what yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I feel like I would watch Scott Pilgrim more often than this movie, but Scott Pilgrim wouldn't exist without it. But also Scott Pilgrim didn't, was, was not successful at the box office. Uh, I think it's well, sure. a pretty... normal audiences weren't ready. I just think Scott yeah. Pilgrim like gets character and the craziness all of it like balanced perfectly and this this one i still i still argue with but i don't hate this movie anymore like you can go back to our old show (laughs) i definitely hated it then i don't hate this movie anymore like i think this movie is fine in fact again i think it might be my favorite with wachowski's movie so far nice do you you know anything you would pair with this uh miles yes yeah um to double feature, uh, this is not a film that you guys have seen. Um, I can almost guarantee. You don't know this. me in my life, Miles. That's true. Is <laughs> oh, it Talladega fact, Nights? As you, Miles, as, is as it you, Talladega Nights? As you guys have told me many times, you guys aren't big into anime. 
And there was an anime film from 2009 called Redline that it's as if they looked at Speed Racer, as if they looked at Speed Racer and said, that's adorable. Um, But this is fully animated. Yes, it's fully animated. It's one of the first, sorry, one of the first, one of the only fully hand-drawn animation films that's come out in the last uh, 20 years. It's over 100,000 frames of hand-drawn animation. It's it takes take Speed Racer the, the 2008 film and inject it with heavy metal and that's the movie. Mm. All right, cool. this sounds as, as, great. As, as in the magazine slash movie anthology heavy metal, like that is this film. It's called Redline. And it's called Redline. Okay. Um, I'm adding this to my watch list, and I think you can still watch it on Tubi. I'm okay. pretty sure it's free to stream. It's just a wild. It has a very specific style, just like this. Um, I think just like this film, it is completely unpretentious and it builds its own world in a way that a film like The Fifth Element builds its sci-fi world where like mm-hmm. you kind of want more of it, but you're pretty satisfied that you got the world building down. I right. it's and it's also just a ride. Wow. Nice. That sounds great. If I could just say, like, if you want to see the ultimate evolution of this, mine I recommend uh fast six or seven <laughs> um, those are yeah. he says while wearing a vin diesel t-shirt i yeah. do i do i wear a vin diesel. I, those are the ultimate or if you'd like to experience uh more more of the big box office and vomiting and less of everything else uh michael bay has a transformer series you might enjoy <laughs> <laughs> So I, I just looked up that movie that you were talking about, uh, Miles, mm-hmm. and it is directed by Takeshi Koiki. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Very cool. I think we actually, no, we talked about him. We talked he about did Koiki. on the fucking Animatrix. Correct. That's right. Yes. Ah, he did world yes. record on the Animatrix. So that's what we cool. talked about him on that. Yes. Which is one of my favorite segments of that movie. So if go back you and like listen that, to our... You will love that movie. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. To, I'm really excited to watch it. I now. think he, <laughs> he also did like Afro Samurai or like maybe the, the pilot, or, I think, or the pilot of Afro Samurai. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, like yeah he's, he's done some great stuff. This is kind of his actual like his one vision he did yeah. a, he did a short um a short film that set it's kind of a prequel to this universe that he did years before red line came out it took them like seven years to make red line and like speed racer didn't do that great uh, I, I they didn't market it right i don't know what happened but it's uh we, we did it for our anime this uh past uh may on the more you nerd and it just blew us away wow well, I'm he gonna did, watch he did that the sequel sure. to Vampire Hunter D too, the the yeah. bloodlust or whatever. Bloodlust. Yeah, it's yeah. Great. I think we mentioned that on the Animatrix episode. But so my pick for a a double feature with Speed Racer is another movie, more recent actually, that's also based on a Japanese manga, also from a prominent director, and also a major failure at the box office, and that is 2019's Alita Battle Angel. Oh, okay. And I, I was worried you were gonna say Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> no, no, no. I haven't seen that. But I haven't seen I, either of those. Well, I didn't watch Alita until it came out. I watched it like last year for the first time. And I watched that. I was like, we are all, we should all be ashamed of ourselves for how we treated this movie when it came out in the theater. Because it's a I, fucking blast. It, it's so I much wanted fun. to see it. I just, I just, I didn't get around to it. I, yeah, I heard it's that really was good. me in the theater. And, and uh, it, it didn't do very well at the box office. Uh, and I don't think that it did very well with critics, but it is a, fantastic movie i mean it is just super fun uh and and i it, it's a shame that it didn't do well and hopefully maybe it'll have like a cult resurgence 
or something and we'll we'll get the follow-up because it definitely ends in a way that it's opened up to sequels i'm not sure what's uh what's going on with that but it's really good i mean directed by robert rodriguez uh co-written by james cameron and it stars um rosa salazar christoph waltz jennifer Connolly. there's some well-known people but rosa salazar is a name you might not know but she has most recently appeared in um and a show on Netflix called Brand New Cherry Flavor, which is really outstanding as well, uh, especially if you're into the work of like David Lynch and, th- and specifically Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks uh, I, or, or even Lost Highway. Uh, definitely check that show out, but it's, it's really good. But Rosa Salazar is the star of that. And she plays the title character in Alita Battle Angel. And I just I do remember watching it for the first time last year on HBO or something and just going why are people not talking about this movie it's it's a blast and it's really fun well for what it's worth i you know now as we're sitting here talking i just wikipedia the thing but they said robert rodriguez in january 2021 said that he was still hoping for a sequel and then later on during an interview with the nerdy basement free plug nerdy basement hit us back (laughs) uh rodriguez claimed that he would try pitching alita if the book of Boba Fett series, which he helped direct succeeded in knocking people's socks off. Nice. Well, I think the book of Boba Fett's going to do just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler (laughs) warning. Spoiler warning. It'll do well. (laughs) Speed racer would end up being the last fully studio funded film that the Wachowskis would make for quite a while. Uh, Their next film. It's a highly ambitious adaptation of a quote-unquote unfilmable novel. Uh, It it would be primarily independently financed. Uh, That film, which was actually co-directed by a German filmmaker by the name of Tom Tom Teichwer, and it is going to be the subject of our next episode, that is 2012's Cloud Atlas. I've only seen it once. I I enjoyed it when I saw it, but I know that it is a difficult film for a lot of people. Never Uh, seen it. I, yeah, I, I didn't Never expect either it. of you to have seen it uh, <laughs> because a lot of people didn't see it, but it's, it's a spectacle. We'll, we'll, and I don't remember a whole lot about it, except I do remember being kind of awed by parts of it, but we'll mm-hmm. see how, uh, we'll see how it goes when we rewatch it and talk about the creation of that for our next episode. I said the last time would be the last time I would enter, uh, mention that interview, but I will bring it up again, just for this, that, that I did see Lana saying that uh, nobody has better range as an actor than Tom Hanks. Like that, yeah. that is the greatest actor. Um, she, she was talking about that. They don't believe in more than one take the same way that they're right. like, if you, if you, if you get a take, you're like, okay, well, we've already got that take. If we're wanting, if we're not feeling it, we want to try a different take. Like, let's give them something different. Like she's like, for example, uh, Hey, that was a great take for this action scene. Now do it like your mom just died. Huh. <laughs> they were like, "Jeez!" And they're like, "No matter what you throw at Tom Hanks, though, he just hits it every time." Yeah. <laughs> uh, that doesn't surprise me one bit. Yeah, so, <laughs> I love that. So we'll talk more about Tom Hanks' involvement with that next week. Uh, if you want to watch Cloud Atlas along with us, uh, hit up Cinemashock.net. We'll have links to where you can stream it anywhere that it's currently streaming online. Uh, of course, you can always get the DVD or Blu-ray if you want to as well. Watch along. And we'll discuss that then. You can also find there on cinemashock.net all of our episode archives, links to buy merchandise, links to our Discord, links to all of our social media, uh, pretty much everything you need to find. That's the hub to find it. Uh, So, Miles, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Uh, you are uh, Miles. For those who who don't know, uh, he's been on the show before. But uh, if if you're maybe a new listener, you might not be familiar with Miles because it has been a while. But he's the co-host of a couple of podcasts, three now, I think. Right, three. Yep, yes. three. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'd say your main show is still um, the more the you more nerd. You nerd. Yes. The more yeah. you nerd. Um, I, yeah, I, I was going on I 10 was, years or so now, right? Yeah. We just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. Um, and for whatever reason, I thought that I needed to make free time less of a concept to me. And, <laughs> uh, so after we've been doing cosmic crit for four years now, I think. Thanks for the I invite was, to the 10th anniversary, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is an, uh, a Starfinder actual play podcast. It's an RPG p- podcast where we uh, play through campaigns of Starfinder. And my current, or I guess my brand new show, is Kaiju versus History, where we go through the history of Kaiju films. Yeah, so oh, that, that would probably uh, really appeal to a lot of people who listen to this show. I yeah, agree. So, that sounds fun. Yeah, we're, we're going through the entire canon, uh, starting with some pre-Kaiju stuff, uh, you know, the early 20th century, and then, you know, obviously with starting with 1933's King Kong, and then mapping everything up until 54's Godzilla, which is generally agreed upon as the first proper Kaiju film. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just now getting out of the 50s, which is mostly a bunch of really shitty American giant bug movies. <laughs> yeah. um, and the less said about them is the better. There are um, a couple of good ones here and there. There are. Um, yeah. And we were largely trying to avoid some of those because they're not kaiju films, but we also wanted to show what was going on in American film as as to why something like Godzilla made such an impact. Right. And um, so we're going to go through everything. Um, actually, going to when we end this show, I'm going to start recording that one. Nice. <laughs> so, nice. Uh, but yeah, those are the those are the three shows. You can find me uh, on Twitter at the more you know. That's where I usually am. Um, at Kaiju versus History, at Cosmic Crit, uh, Instagram and Letterbox are at Miles Will Save Us. Nice. Where? Uh, what about you, Todd and Gary? You want to remind everyone where you can be found? Yes, you can follow my Star Trek podcast at Computer Resume on all of the socials. We are covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old, and that releases weekly uh, wherever you find your podcasts. And you can reach out to me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. Hey, Matt, my my this... favorite recent thing was the uh, being at uh, a party with Todd and people walk up to us and, and like, oh, what are you guys talk about? We go Star Trek and they're just like fucking figures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am uh, at this is Gary Horn and uh, I do have the wrestling podcast It's at TIPW show. We've been kind of slack, but it's coming back now. We found a lot of opportunities there for it to uh, blossom into more. Uh, in the meantime, you can see me online over at uh, the NWA at NWA National Wrestling Alliance. You uh, the doing interviews and getting bitched out by people. That's uh, another thing I do, so. especially Austin Idol. Especially Austin Idol. Uh, I, I love watching you get screamed at uh, by Chelsea Green. That was pretty amazing. I yeah, legitimately I it, almost get... I almost shit my pants because <laughs> that was not you know despite what people think about wrestling that was not rehearsed like she was really really fine right before that and then we said go and then i wish she just her a question and then she started screaming <laughs> i love it i love it and you're at did you say at rock and roll gary i don't know if you said at, that. this is gary horde <laughs> rock and roll gary <laughs> at rock and roll gary you won't find him there anymore not anymore <laughs> and this is gary horde this is Gary Horn, and I am at Justin underscore Bishop. 
Uh, and Miles, thanks again. If you ever need any uh, co-host for the or special guest for your Kaiju podcast, I'm sure any of us would love to do that. Oh, as well. yeah. Uh, you can, I think that'd be super fun. I think that'd be a fun crossover uh, considering the content. I've, I've been thinking of a ways to get us all to, to like doing something like that. Um, yeah. I know that Todd is doing something soon with Star Trek and I know my co-host a few is, of them, yeah. is going to be on that soon as well. So nice. we'll figure something out in the new year, I hope. Very cool. And find uh, the find the podcast at Cinema Underscore Shock, Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook, uh, all that stuff. Uh, like, rate, review, all that shit. Uh, until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. <laughs> you poor naive chump. I'm going to pretend I didn't just hear that load of shickening sh- schmaltz. I'm going to give you a bit of an education, and at the end of it, if you're smart. You'll thank me, and then you'll sign that contract. Interesting that you and your father were so moved by the 43 Pre. One of the greatest finishes in history of racing, right? Everyone remembers Burns and Stickleton slugging it out, but who remembers Carl Potts? Driving this rebuilt wit again for Iodine Industries, Potts spun out in the second lap and went down as a DNF. A forgettable and pathetic finish, so bad that afterwards Iodine's stock dropped six points but as ben burns sat guzzling cold fresh milk in victory lane a thousand cameras taking his picture serious aeronautics saw an almost 12 point gain which immediately blocked peninsula power cell from being able to afford the price of a complete takeover this put joel goldman the ceo of iodine in in the exact position he wanted to be in By first buying controlling interest of his own company at a devalued price, he then brokered a merger with Sirius that immediately sent Iodine into the game's record book, the only record book that matters. Look out that window. There isn't a single plane or helicopter or K-Harrier that isn't powered by Iodine fuel cells. That's what racing is about. It has nothing to do with cars or drivers. All that matters is Johnny has the keys. That is the most, that was the like most whiskey dick ending to this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't get, I didn't get to do the fun part of like, are you ready to become a real race car driver? Only in this show would we talk about how fucking obnoxious that speech was. And then then Todd would do it at the end. As as they said it, it took everything in my power to not be like, yes. That's you know what it really what it really needs I'll say that what it really needs is a child and a monkey and Leonard Skinner's Freebird <laughs> to really bring it home. <laughs> I love you, Todd, but I am. I've been walking around like for the last because we watched it two weeks ago. I've been walking around for two weeks going, Are you ready to become a real race car driver? Sign a contract. Don't do it again. Don't do I it love again. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess we got to go now. Miles, do you, do you have an ending? <laughs> I am not following that up. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's fair enough. All right. Johnny has the keys, everybody, for whatever ungodly reason still. <laughs>